Today's episode of The Rewatchables is brought to you by Vudu. Vudu is a leading streaming app with a library of over 150,000 titles available to rent or buy and over 10,000 titles you can watch for free on their ad-supported on-demand service. Enjoy everything from the latest Hollywood blockbusters to your favorite indie films without subscriptions or contracts. You know, I've been watching a bunch of movies on Vudu of late, especially since we've been doing The Rewatchables, and with The Matrix 4 coming, now might be a good time to check out some of The Matrix movies they've got on the service. So head over to voodoo.com slash rewatchables to sign up and start watching today. That's vudu.com slash rewatchables. Today's episode of The Rewatchables is also brought to you by Allbirds. Allbirds are the perfect shoes to express your personal style to the fullest. Their simplicity stands out in a good way. There are no logos to distract from the rest of your look, only clean lines and subtle detailing to create a visually appealing look. Plus, their range of colors can follow however you're feeling. Be as subtle or as bold as you want. And choose from a variety of silhouettes to match your style in any situation. Allbirds are the perfect shoes for any style. Get your own pair now at allbirds.com. Yo! Hold up! Time out! Time out! Y'all need to take a chill! You need to cool that shit out! And that's the double truth, Ruth. This is the rewatchables. Do the right thing. Always do the right thing. Universal Pictures presents a new film from Spike Lee. Good morning, Miss Mother Sister. Now, Mookie, don't work too hard today. The man says it's going to be hot as the devil. I've been here 25 years. The South's famous pizzeria is here to stay. Trust me. Mookie, the last time I trusted you, we ended up with a son. I know you can't stand it. You can't stand it. Hey, Sal, I'm going to put on a wall here. Good people, please. Please don't stop this. And stop it now. We're gonna do something we're gonna regret for the rest of our lives. Doctor, come on, what? What? Always do the right thing. That's it? That's it. I got it. I'm gone. I'm Wesley Morris. I'm just going to say that right now. You don't even have to introduce me because you just did it. Now, I will also say to everybody watching this thing and listening, you set me the fuck up. How so? Because what you said (laughs) was the... Okay. I understand what you mean now, but I didn't know what you meant. I set you up, Wesley. I'm so happy to be with you. (laughs) My name is Sean Fennessy. I'm the editor-in-chief of The Ringer. We're talking about Do the Right Thing. Yes. Spike Lee's 1989... Masterwork? Yes. Signature film? Masterwork. Signature film, hmm. Both. Something for us to discuss. Both, both, both. Uh, I'm going to do a couple of data points, and then we're going to dive right into the conversation. This movie was released by Universal Pictures, which is a fascinating thing into itself. It premiered at Cannes, May 19th, 1989. Mm -hmm. It had a budget of $6 million, and it made $37 million at the box office. On Rotten Tomatoes, which does not matter, it has a 93% score. Mm. My guy, Roger Ebert. I'm going to read something a little bit longer than I normally would read this for what he says. This is from a four-star review, I presume. I have been given only a few film-going experiences in my life to equal the first time I saw Do the Right Thing. Mm. Most movies remain up there on the screen. Only a few penetrate your soul. Mm. In May of 1989, I walked out of the screening at the Cannes Film Festival with tears in my eyes. Spike Lee had done an almost impossible thing. He'd made a movie about race in America that empathized with all the participants. He didn't draw lines or take sides, but simply looked with sadness at one racial flashpoint that stood for many others. Hmm. So, 
I just got to chill. Yes. That is a meaningful way to describe it. This is... That is film criticism, everybody. Obviously, Ebert, at the top of his game, when given something meaningful to chew on... Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. I got to say, I've been really looking forward to talking to you about this movie. I don't think you and I have ever had a conversation about this movie. Nope. It's the 30-year anniversary, obviously. Yeah. There's a lot of obvious things. You know, it was not nominated for Best Picture, quite famously. This yes. is, of course, the year that Driving Miss Daisy won Best Picture. Yes. Famously, like at the time, not nominated for yes. Best Picture. It was a big talking point. It was a huge talking point of the critical community. Mm-hmm. And in fact, is one of the all-time, I don't know... Um, debated incidents in film criticism history of it's not being nominated for best picture just just the film in oh, general. oh the movie itself the, the, the reaction oh, to it the reception yeah, to yeah, it yeah 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 so yeah. you know we'll get into that a little bit in this conversation um it did get two oscar nominations i got a best original screenplay nomination for spike and a best supporting actor nomination for danny aiello mm-hmm. the tagline of this movie is it's the hottest day of the summer you can do something you can do nothing or you can do the right thing What's your relationship to do the right thing right now? When did you see it? How do you feel about it 30 years later? Uh, when did I see it? I saw it when it was out. I can, oh, you know what I remember about do the right thing? This is a roundabout way of telling you what my priorities might have been as a, how old would I have been? 13 year old? Um, that was the weekend that weekend at Bernie's. <laughs> We can look that up, but I'm a, almost 100% sure. Great double feature. That, that Weekend at Bernie's opened the same weekend. Um, or maybe it was either the weekend before or the weekend after. And I can remember being much more fascinated. It was two weeks before. Two weeks before. Okay. Um, I can remember being much more fascinated by Weekend at Bernie's or seeing Weekend at Bernie's than I was about to do the right thing. Also, the controversy. I grew up in Philadelphia, and the controversy about that movie had made its way to Philadelphia, and it was like, you were risking your life if you went. And I, at that point, was seeing movies by myself. Like, I wasn't going, I didn't go see movies with my friends. I'd see them with my mom and my sister every once in a while, and my dad, um, when he would take us with his family. But... For the most part, I would say I watched most of the movies that I saw in a movie theater alone. Or, you know, I didn't go with anybody. There were other people in the theater. Um, I have to be honest. I, I, what I remember about Do the Right Thing was watching it. I remember two other viewing experiences, not the theatrical one. One was watching it in 1990. With now, I want also to make clear, I read every single thing written about that movie that I could get my hands. That's on. what I was going to ask you: was were you aware of a kind of reaction community to movies, or were you just a kid that saw everything? Well, it was so controversial that like my mom watched like three hours of news when I was a kid, right? So right. she'd watch the five o'clock news, the five thirty news, the six o'clock news, the world news tonight. So that's what. That's only seven. That's only two hours of news. But that's a lot of news. Mm-hmm. Um, and I grew up in Philadelphia. We have, by the way, Philadelphia, WPVI, best local news in the country. Like, we, they don't redo anything. They give you 90 minutes of new news. And it's just great. Anyway, I remember it being like a news story. And at some point... I think the news storiness of it so overwhelmed me 
that I don't really, it sort of has supplanted the memory of like the fear of going to see the theater. I see it at the movie theater. I think it was at the Sam Eric, either the chestnut. I either saw, I know I saw it on chestnut street. I just can't remember which theater it was, but I saw it in downtown center, center city, Philadelphia. Um, but I remember watching it in social studies class with Mr. Kazempel who showed us movies. No kidding. Yeah. And I can remember provocative ha- movie to show in, 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 were you in public school? Uh, as a private school, um, complicated private school, but, okay. but not a public school. Um, and trusted us. I mean, all my classmates were, we were mostly black. There were a couple white kids and, um, we talked about it <laughs> and we, I remember being really confused by and like electrified in a, in a confused way by the ending. Right. I think Where, we'll spend a lot well, of time I mean, on the ending. Here. Like classic Spike Lee fashion. There are actually three endings, but <laughs> the, the, the very last shot, not the, the whole, actually all of the endings are, are tough. Um, the idea that Mookie just wants to get paid and Sal's being like, you burned down my pizzeria. Well, you want me to pay you? I built this place with my bare right. fucking hands. Right. You, you, you want your money? Here. Take your fucking money. And he's throwing these bills at, at Mookie. And then Mookie picks up the money and they proceed to have a like, talk about the weather kind of conversation. And it's weird. That was so confusing to 13-year-old me. And that's for, that was forgotten in the way that the movie was written about. Because the movie, the way that critics and columnists at the time wrote about the movie was as if there was a, 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 a black man was killed by the police. Mm-hmm. That man was dragged off. Mm-hmm. Mookie throws the trash can through the window. Mm-hmm. The riot ensues. They burn the place down. And then you would imagine that it just cut to black. And then the movie was over. Oh, yeah. You know, the way that people talked about the way that it would incite a feeling, it didn't talk about how there was this kind of elegiac ending. And then, you know, a kind of- There's two codas. And then there's the, you know, the very famous text on the screen Mm -hmm. from Martin Luther King King Jr. and Malcolm X and the kind of contrast between those two ideas. other thing that confused me, I had never, like, the idea that that those two men, they aren't even- pitted against people the the read on that moment was that spike lee it told you everything about who was writing about our movies at that time because people were assuming that spike lee was endorsing malcolm x and not martin luther king they the whole they missed the whole point of the movie which is that it's a complete dialectic right there is there is a one hand and then there's another hand and he is he never ever loses sight of that at, at any moment in this movie. It is almost a perfect philosophical text in that way. I, I completely agree. I think that to write about that in that way, to even understand the movie in that way, and I, I think a lot of people just didn't understand the movie at the time, even though it was, as you say, a new story every day, was that it requires nuance. It is a new is meant to be is purposefully meant to hold two thoughts at the same time mm-hmm. and if you can't get on board with that then you can't i don't know we should probably just say maybe if you're listening to this and you haven't seen do the right thing please run out and go see do the right thing oh stop one of the most important American movies of the last 40 years um you know it's set all in one day in bed mm-hmm. uh it largely takes place in the apartments of the denizens on the street on one basically on one street and in one pizzeria 
and all of the goings on there, all of the figures there. It's a major ensemble cast. It features the discovery of some of the best character actors still working. Mm -hmm. It's one of the most beautifully shot films I've ever seen. Ernest Dickerson. Oh, yeah. Astonishing use of color, communicating uh, weather in a way that Mm -hmm. is hard to do sometimes. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And just this or like just his use of camera angles to to establish character. Dutch angles out the ass in this movie. He's tilting the camera at all times. Um, but only when it matters, yes. right? Like it only when you a, have to be uneasy. It, it isn't a trick. Yeah. It is. It is an actual literary. De- it's a cinematic device, right? No question. Um, here's here's how the movie is described on Wikipedia. Here's the synopsis. Tell me how you feel about the way that this is positioned. I'm still adjusting to whatever. Okay. All right, I'll. Salvatore Sal Fragioni. <laughs> played by Danny Aiello, is the Italian owner of a pizzeria in Brooklyn. A neighborhood local bugging out, Giancarlo Esposito, becomes upset when he sees that the pizzeria's wall of fame exhibits only Italian actors. Bugging out believes a pizzeria in a black neighborhood should showcase black actors, but Sal disagrees. The wall becomes a symbol of racism and hate to bugging out and to other people in the neighborhood and tensions rise. I don't really think that that's what this movie is about. Hmm. That is an incident in the movie, but is that what Do the Right Thing is about? Because that doesn't even feature the word Mookie, yeah. who is Spike Lee's character. But, Sean, if you think about it, that is the movie, right? Like, there is a version, there's a bad version of this movie that is that, right? The It is not so much that the synopsis is inaccurate. It's just that when you boil it down to what the movie is actually about, it's that. It is the it is the the thing that that having that pizzeria in that neighborhood comes to mean to the people who've always lived in it, and the idea that 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 Sal and his two sons Pino and and Vito are they from Bensonhurst? Yes, they are, and which is another part of Brooklyn, um, primarily Italian. Yes, although I don't know, is it still? I think so. Okay, maybe Polish as well. Um, and. The idea that these guys would come from Bensonhurst, which, you know, not exactly a welcoming place for for black people um, at the time, and which I think is explored in Jungle Fever a couple of years later. Is oh, Bensonhurst yeah. a part of yeah. that story? Yes. Yeah. And you know that synopsis is pretty. <laughs> now it it obviously it omits things that happen in the movie. It omits all of the color and flavor and seasoning and texture and 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 wonder and sound and all the things that make the the atmosphere, everything that makes the movie great is not in that synopsis. But the actual politics of the movie are, are, are like encapsulated in this one relationship. And it really is a movie about capitalism in so many ways. And it really is a movie about ownership and disenfranchisement. And it really is a movie that's about a thing that if you live in a major American city or even like, like a less than major American city, like a, like a mid-sized American city, this is a, in a small town, if you, if I'm thinking right, like this is a thing that you are actively being forced to deal with, which is like, what foothold in my black neighborhood do I actually have and who is given one? just by virtue of who they are. And that, I mean, this movie is basically, that's what the movie's about. 
right? It could have been even more explicitly about that. And so it's funny that like that is like a needle in a haystack explanation of this movie to me, but it's a it's a gold needle if you think about it. So I think a lot of times on this show, we're lo- looking to locate movies that are comforting. Mm. Rewatchable means we're going to return to something because it makes us feel good. Mm. So you and I and a couple of other folks had a conversation about Beverly Hills Cop recently. Now, there is a lot to unpack about Beverly Hills Cop. Oh, yeah. And there is probably some social import that you can glean from it. But a lot of it is basically extra textual. You have to work a little bit harder to say, this was important because. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. A lot of the movies we do on this show are like, Wedding Crashers. <laughs> it's fun to watch the movie Wedding Crashers and to say the lines and to talk about whether something was funny or oh, not. that montage. Yes. It's one of the great, great stuff. montages. Great stuff. Uh, this movie is different from that. Now, I will say, as I rewatched it again this week, I've probably seen it 10 or 15 times in mm-hmm. my life. It was kind of comforting. It was fun. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of fun to be had in this movie. But it is also, um, not only is it important, but it's working hard to be important. And it's working hard to disrupt your feeling of ease and comfort. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at the risk of exposing myself a little bit, I was just in tears watching the end of the movie again, which is a feeling I've had watching it before, which is just an irreconcilable feeling that you have. Was it the, was it Radio Raheem's death? I think it's pretty it? much everything. Yes. As soon as he, as soon as he is grabbed, mm-hmm. it, you know, the movie obviously goes into a new state of panic. Yeah. Um, and there's no way to, clarify there's no way to fix it even if you know what's coming there's no way to fix it and it feels no. like a problem and it's not a solvable problem in the country obviously it's not a solvable problem in the movie no one for a movie called do the right thing i think a lot of people felt like why didn't anybody do the right thing now there are a lot of other people who are like well mookie does do the right thing and that's part of a complex yeah. part of this conversation right 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 i am a proponent of nobody does the right thing Right. Like there's no, that neighborhood, I mean, it is, it is, it was shot in a real part of Bed-Stuy, Bedford-Stuyvesant, which is a neighborhood in Brooklyn. Um, And it was shot in a real block and everything, like I still think, you know, he had a big, Spike Lee had a big party um, at that location. And I didn't go, but I thought about what it would mean to, like I was near there. What was I? I don't know. It doesn't matter what I was doing. I, 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 tr- I made an effort and didn't wind up doing it. But what I was thinking about was what would that neighborhood look like right now after like 30 years after that incident? What is in the spot where Sal's was? Do they, is it, has it been memorialized? I mean, Spike Lee himself, I think, complicated that question because he made a movie called Red Hook Summer. Right, okay, Six sure. or seven years yes, ago. Yes, yes, In which the Mookie character <laughs> appears and he's delivering pizza for a pizzeria called Sal's that has right. ostensibly relocated to Red Hook. So maybe Bed-Stuy has changed a little bit, but that idea that we can't necessarily get away from who we really are and what we're about and who we're close to and how we choose, I mean, where we grow up and how that influences who we are is, he. he's not, he hasn't resolved that either. You know what I mean? And he kind of went out of his way to say that Red Hook Summer was not a sequel to Do the Right Thing. But that was not a, that was a choice with purpose. To oh, say, sure. Mookie is still here. Mookie is still doing this work. Brooklyn is Brooklyn. You know, Brooklyn's not going to change. And no, that's like a, that feels like a 
central to the to the idea that he's getting after. And the under the sort of underlying thing about that what that incident in that neighborhood on that day comes down to is like it isn't just about Brooklyn. It's like that is that is an American it is an American problem and it still is. And the great thing about the movie is that it feels, I don't know if you feel this way, but it just feels timeless to me. It, I mean, there are things about it that are clearly 1989 things, but that story and, and the way it's delivered to us is timeless. And the reason that you can keep watching it is because in a weird way, you want to see, you want there's two things for me at least. I want to see how he did it. Like, I still don't know how we did it. I don't, it is, it is a magical event, this movie, um, and a magical achievement. But the other thing is, I watch it because I feel like, you know, it's so, like, again, it's like a perfect work of philosophy, and you return to it to understand something about, about us as people, and, like, America as a society and New York as a specific place within that society. And what the, what about us is so, has such a capacity for love and contempt. I mean, even that is even built into the movie, right? Like the first time you see Radio Rahim, you know, he, he's excited to, to show Mookie his new, his new, like knuckle, like his big what the do we story of love them? and hate. Right. I mean, the love and hate rings, but what are those rings? Like, what do they have actual name? Brass knuckles. Are they really though? They're not, They're not. but I mean, that's not a mistake either that right. they could be mistaken for those right. sorts of well, things. Well, right. Once, you know? once the dude's dead and in handcuffs or whatever, like, exactly. he had a pair of brass knuckles. It said love and hate. I exactly. Know. That feels purposeful too. That I, I felt provoked. And you know, obviously all the, so much of the text of the movie is inspired by, Everything that had happened in Howard Beach in New York a few years earlier, mm-hmm. um, the death of a graffiti artist oh. living in New York at well, the time. Well, this I'm going to have to read. Like, uh. there's a whole like starting in 1984. There's Eleanor Bumpers who was shot and killed by yep. the police. Michael Griffith, Arthur Miller in '78, Edmund Perry in '85, Yvonne Smallwood in '87, Michael Stewart in '83. This was the same summer that the Central Park Five were arrested for not raping that woman. Yep. Um, that poor woman. Um, this is a, it's a zeitgeist it's, film in the truest sense of the word. Right. It's capturing a feeling that was happening in the city, a frustration, a fear, an anxiety, a rage. That's was the result of a series of horrible things that happened to real people. Right. And that's risky and hard to do. I think you, did I say Yusef Hawkins? You did not. Um, Yusef Hawkins also is that year. He just not, it's not a thing jungle fever is dedicated to Yusuf Hawkins who also I think dies in 89. Right. And most of those people, the film is dedicated to that. You just listed right and do the right thing. Right. And you know, what complicates it is, and we'll get to the category soon. I promise. Um, is the way that the movie was positioned by white media. I mean, the David Denby review in New York magazine more than any other. And spike has cited this over and over again is, you know, I, one of the worst pieces of film criticism that I've ever read. Um, hmm. It's like a very poorly considered misread of a movie in recent times. I'll read very briefly from I this piece. I found that in the library. I remember the day that I read that. It's and, June 26, 1989. Yeah. 
Here's what he writes. The explosion at the end of the movie, an outburst intimate in scale but truly frightening, should divide the audience, leaving some moviegoers angry and vengeful, others sorrowful and chastened. Divided himself, Lee may even be foolish enough to dream, alternately, of increasing black militants and of calming it. But if Spike Lee is a commercial opportunist, he's also playing with dynamite in an urban playground. The response to the movie could get away from him. He continues. If an artist has made his choices and settled on a coherent point of view, he shouldn't be held responsible, I believe, if parts of his audience misunderstand him. He should be free to be, quote, dangerous. But Lee hasn't worked coherently. The end of this movie is a shambles, and if some audiences go wild, he's partly responsible. Lee wants to rouse people to, quote, wake them up. But to do what? (laughs) Those matching quotations from Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. are little more than a confession of artistic and moral impotence. (gasps) My guess is that Spike Lee thinks that violence solves nothing, but he'd like to be counted in the black community as an angry man, a man ready, despite his success, to smash things. The end of the movie is an open embrace of futility. What? <laughs> well, it is an open embrace of futility, right? Like that the the movie is not for you to be like there, there's some like maybe a stopped clockedness to this, right? Sure. Uh my favorite Spike Lee critique, whenever anybody has anything construct like quote constructive to say about Spike Lee, they always include his success. They always include the idea that he, like, it's either a complaint about all the money that he's made. And at this point, he hasn't really made no, that much No, this is his third film. But he, the critiques of, of him as a, as, a, as a sort of cultural figure for a lot of his early success when he was a superstar artist were about money and how much money he was making. And we should, let, and, let, let, let's, let's talk about that, though, because his... He was a famous person in part because of Mars Blackman, in part because of Michael Jordan and And the the commercial work that he did. And so he was, he's not the same as, um, he's not the same as uh, Ernest Dickerson, who was his DP here, who went on to be a filmmaker, who does not have a huge public profile. So that is also being factored into all criticism of him. Right. But it's also typically, usually when it comes up, irrelevant to the matter at hand. Like his, his, like, changing our relationship to, to to basketball to like tennis shoes and sneakers uh has nothing to do with nothing to do with better blues whether Mo better blues is a good movie yeah but this is a thing that comes up a lot when they write about whether the movies are good or not maybe he should spend less time making commercials with this Michael Jordan person and better more time writing in screenplays that makes sense yeah i mean I- in the Denby piece, and there was a Jack Kroll piece in Newsweek, and there was also a Joe Klein. The piece Joe Klein in one time. is the and Stanley Crouch too. I, I did not re- reread Stanley Crouch's. Piece. Stanley Crouch was another. Stanley Crouch is one of the few black people who who wrote about this movie and wrote scathingly about um, what it did and should do. Armin White was, I think, another person who didn't like this movie. Um, I can't remember now. I think Armin White is another person who did not like to do the right thing. I could be wrong about that. The, the way that Klein positioned it was in opposition to David Dinkins' mayoral campaign. Yes. He said that this was this, this is could this is going to be David a problem Dinkins, for Dinkins, which yes. is obviously kind of the opposite of what Spike was trying to get at. I mean, right. much of the, these criticisms are literally the opposite. They're not of what even watching a movie at this point, right? They are watching, and this is a sort of thing that I just it drives me crazy about the the 
like the degree to which black people, black artists have had to fight to be taken seriously as artists who have ideas that aren't telling you, white person, how to be a good white (laughs) and are acknowledging that the shit is complicated. And part of the complexity is that it can't be resolved because the work that we need to do to resolve it, nobody is really willing to do. And I don't think the the tragedy in a weird way of this movie is a tragedy of of having nobody be able to like offer a history lesson, right? Mm-hmm. There's something about Smiley being the representative of both sides of this um of both sides of the equation between violence and nonviolence. He's walking through the movie holding a Malcolm X postcard on the one hand and a um Martin Luther King Jr postcard they're on the same card oh they're on the same card photo of them together doesn't he rip them at some point he like puts magic marker around them and draws he makes little boskiats out of them that's exactly right um and the idea that you have this person the person who's representing the go right they're in the same what movie are people watching obviously the point of the movie (laughs) so they exist together they have to exist together so and again this is just a perfectly made movie from top to bottom the rep, the person holding this photo is what in in classic theater you would call the village idiot, and this is a sort of disabled, you know, mentally challenged man played by the excellent Roger Guinevere Smith, and the this sort of the inability to articulate his Smiley's inability to articulate with to anybody's with anybody's patience anyway, what is happening in this photo. And to be able to talk to people about Malcolm and Martin working together, there's no the one person equipped to 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 give this history lesson. Nobody has the patience to listen to. <laughs> and well, at the risk of getting ahead of ourselves, that character was not in the original script. And mm. the only reason that Smiley's in the movie, and he is a, a key figure in the movie, he is like the living metaphor of the movie, is because Roger Guinevere Smith, who knew Spike and lived on around the corner in Bed Stuy came to the set every day and begged and begged and begged and begged to be in the movie. And he created the character and Spike put the character in the movie. So it's a sign that huh. while Spike is brilliant and while he's one of the foremost movie directors of his time, sometimes luck and relationships oh, are a yeah. huge part of this too. Yeah. You know? If you don't yeah. have Smiley in the movie, it doesn't, it doesn't work it, as well. It doesn't work as well. No. So it's just a fascinating thing. Any other general observations you want to make about the movie before we go to the categories? Um... I just, I think it's perfect. I think it is, it is just, when people ask me, I get asked all the time what my favorite movie is. Hmm. All, like, there is really not, there, there's almost a day that does not go by. Number one, Steel Magnolias. <laughs> Number two, Jurassic World. Oh, Jurassic Wow, <laughs> you really, that hurt. What do you say? Steel Magnolias is, That's I, a great one. I, I would not, not say Steel <laughs> Magnolias. Um, I usually say this. Really? It is, it is in my mind, too, in my mind, it is actually a very lazy choice. It requires zero thought. And for a while, I was reluctant to say it because it seemed like, oh, the black film, the black, the person who's like a film critic and is also black thinks that do the right thing is his fit. But no, it's perfect. It's nothing to do. I mean, it may have something to do with my being black. I mean, I get emotional by so much of this movie, including its blackness. Like it, it is, 
it is so vividly and specifically black in so many ways, but also vividly and specifically Italian mm-hmm. and very open to what it would mean to live in a community with with like the Korean bodega, for instance. And the the moment that that it happens with them with with the with the husband and wife who own that bodega. I mean, anyway, I just think it's a perfect movie. It's so easy. It gives me such pleasure to be able to have this movie in my back pocket to be like, here it is. I don't have to like really search my brain and like pick a Bong Joon Ho movie because it sound it sounds. I mean, I could pick one or an a Peach Pong or a Seth Cole movie because it sounds. Like a thing. That, if like, you said Uncle Boon Me, people would say you're pretentious. But if you say <laughs> do the right thing, people say, oh, he's a black critic. So you're kind of damned if you do and eh, damned if you don't. You know what? If that if I tell you do the right thing and that's what you say, I'm like, well, then you really need to see this movie because this is the movie for you, sir. You know, we had, we had a conversation on this show about broadcast news a few months ago. I know. Great movie. It's a perfect, another perfect movie. So the conversation was, is that the best movie of the 80s? This is a movie that is frequently oh, in that conversation too. Best movie of the 80s. Tough one. Best American movie of the 80s? Sure. Yes. Probably easier to narrow that down. You know, there's a pop answer to that. There's like, oh, is it Die Hard? Mm. Is it? Is it? I wouldn't put Die Hard in my top 10. Okay. I mean, I love Die Hard. But this movie is frequently cited as, Harry? I think, and the movie, the, the decade is bookended. It's Raging Bull 1980, Do the Right Thing 1989. New York runs the movie industry. You know I don't. I know you don't go for Raging Bull. I, I, there are some, listen, there are some amazing things, but my Scorsese movie from the 80s is After Hours. King of Comedy and After Hours are my two Scorsese We're going to have to work movies. on Bill to get those to be rewatchables. <laughs> We're going to go to the categories, but first, a message from our sponsor. The new Netflix original series, The Dark Crystal Age of Resistance, returns to the world of Thrall with an all-new adventure. Based on The Dark Crystal, Jim Henson's groundbreaking 1982 feature film, The Dark Crystal Age of Resistance tells a new story set many years before the events of the movie through classic puppetry with cutting-edge visual effects. The world of Thra is dying. The crystal of truth is at the heart of Thra, a source of untold power. But it is damaged, corrupted by the evil Skeksi, and a sickness spreads across the land. When three Gelfling discover the horrifying secret behind the Skeksis' power, they set out on an epic journey to ignite the fires of rebellion and save their world. The characters in the Dark Crystal Age of Resistance will be voiced by a star-studded cast, including Mark Hamill, Simon Pegg, Taron Egerton, Andy Samberg, Kate McKinnon, Helena Bonham Carter, Natalie Dormer, Eddie Izzard, and more. Watch the Dark Crystal Age of Resistance on Netflix on August 30th. Wesley, the first category's most rewatchable scene. Mm. I've written down a few. Mm-hmm. I'm hopeful you can help me go mm-hmm. through this a little bit. First one obviously has to be opening sequence, Rosie Perez dancing. You can imagine young Sean Fennessy hearing Public Enemy, I mean, watching I Rosie do her thing. Are you about to do the I thing? Think I can. <laughs> Wait, hold on. It's like double dutch, though. You got to be ready to jump in. I will not be joining you. It's like. <laughs> I mean, she was. She was choreographing the Fly Girls she at that was. point. And you can see, I mean, you can see an entire, like, five years of dance just in that. Wait, what's the other one? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> anyway, I. The story is that uh, Spike met Rosie in a club in New York. This is, can I just pause you for one second? Yeah. How many filmmakers are just casting their movies from being out in the world. Just th- everything in this movie is an accident. Really? Yes. Right? Like he just was out minding his business and here's Rosie Perez. 
Rosie tells this great story about how they're having this conversation in a club. The music is blasting, whatever. It's a Wednesday night in Brooklyn. And he says to her, um, or she says, he says, you want to be in my movie? And she says, I'm not an actress. And he says, yes, you are. And that's, that's <laughs> really? everything. I Hold mean, on. that's everything. <laughs> this is going to be harder to do. Hold on. This is the real flag <laughs> You know who he was, who she was choreographing for at that time. Who was in the Fly Girls? Jennifer Lopez? That's right. Jennifer Lopez wasn't, she was just Jenny from the Block. She was just Jenny from the Block. She remains Jenny from the Block. Okay, that's the number, that's but the first one. Why, wait, I, Jennifer Lopez was like not even a remote, she hadn't even made Money Train. She wasn't even near Money Train. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. She was nothing. She was just a dancer. She was not a famous person yet. Oh, you're saying when she was a Fly Girl. Yeah, oh, I yeah, got it. Yes. I'm, I'm saying understood. Rosie was working with yes, J-Lo. Yes, yes. Second scene, bugging out in the Wall of Fame. Mookie! So you know still... Why? How come you got no brothers up on the wall? Man, ask Sal, right? Hey, hey, Sal, how come you got no brothers up on the wall here? You want brothers on the wall? Get your own place. You can do what you want to do. You can put your brothers and uncles and nieces and nephews, your stepfather, stepmother, whoever you want, you see? But this is my pizzeria. American Italians on the wall only. Complicated scene. We don't totally uh we're not necessarily on bugging outside here i think famously spike has always said about that scene where he's having the debate hmm. with sal about why there are more black people on the wall spike has always said there were good points on both sides <laughs> sal had a point that's his yep. shop you want to put some stuff up on the wall go ahead bugging out's point is the only people who come, who eat here are black people to not respect black people and put them on the wall is 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 a failure on your part well you know what's interesting about that conversation is it's kind of an internet conversation. <laughs> it is. Right? Yeah. It is a it is a proto-internet conversation. And it isn't so much that bugging out is not right, but there's no subtlety in the critique of there's no there's no compromise. Yes. How will they meet in how the middle many, on this? How many how many brothers should go up on the wall bugging out? And who? And, 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 and who who's decides? choosing the brothers that go up on the wall. Yeah. And, I mean, he does, I feel like there is a really interesting critique of, I mean, couldn't they just have gone somewhere else to get the pizza? Right? You like, think? I, I don't mean, know. But Bugging Out. But, the, but well, they were raised I, but, on that pizza. But, but Bugging Out is such an, like, is such an interesting version of black, of a kind of black activism, right? Which is... All like very emotional, not anti-historical, but sort of ahistorical, right? Like there is a history that his anger is attached to, but he's focused so much on the moment and the implications of his anger and the, the hypocrisy of it too are sort of counterproductive. They're never going to make Sal do anything more than feel confronted and 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 uh, like aggrieved, um, and, it's a showdown, and, right? Um, I feel like I know. I mean, I feel like this could go on for another twenty minutes. Okay, I'm gonna keep going. No, but, I mean, take your time. No, no, no. the fire hydrant. <laughs> Frank, <laughs> Frank, Vin Vincent. Frank, Frank Vincent driving through the fire hydrant. <laughs> Love that scene. One of the funniest parts of the movie. I mean, anybody who's lived in a city where you play in the fire. Did you play in fire hydrants as a kid? No, I played sprinklers. I it was played, more sprinklers where I grew up. We didn't have lawns yeah, where I grew I'm up. Sorry. 
Don't be. This is one less thing for me to do on a Saturday afternoon. <laughs> were you Let in the fire you. hydrant though? You were oh, in the, yeah. the fire hydrant. There was a fire hydrant. I'm pointing like I'm pointing from like my front there? window. <laughs> I'm pointing from my front window to the fire hydrant that would come on. We every once in a while there'd be some reason to open the fire hydrant and we would use it. It was on the corner of our street. It didn't happen that often, but you'd like wait for the cars to pass. And every once in a while, you just want to mess with some driver and you'd sit on the hydrant and make the water go down just because somebody would be, be a motorcycle or like, like a hearse or something. Mm-hmm. And then somebody would have inevitably have a, have a can that had no top or bottom and you just like, you'd spray it at the car. And it would just be the the sound of the water hitting the car. It all reminded us of a really hard pee. Um, and it was just like, to like an eight-year-old kid, it's just the funniest thing in the world. Anyway, that experience with Frank Vincent is a thing that lots of kids in lots of cities have. In cities in America, but yeah. not in, if you didn't grow up in a city, perhaps you don't even recognize what's happening there. It right. It be completely yeah. confusing to yeah. you. Yeah, why are they playing in the fire hydrant? Because yeah. you know what? We didn't have a pool. Good and point. there I were pools. Either. There were pools that we weren't even allowed to go into. That's true. So fire hydrant. Sorry. Next scene, Pino and Sal have a debate about what they should do with the pizzeria. Daddy, you know I've been thinking. Maybe we should sell this place. Get out while we're still ahead and alive. You really think you know what's best for us, Pino? Maybe we could. Can we sell this and open up a new one in our own neighborhood? There's too many pizzerias already there. Then maybe, maybe we could we could try something different. What, what am I gonna do? What do I, that's all I know. What am I doing? One long shot. It's a really good. Inter- I mean, interrupted by Smiley. Another movie does not. And what do they do? They sh- like Sal wants to talk the one person well not the one person who wants to talk to bugging out but like surprisingly wants to engage but but pino is like get out get the get out of here yeah um why is that conversation in this movie between like, the two of them like i think i know why. no 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 I, I know why but just think about what it's so it's so generous. It's necessary, but it's not essential, right? Like no. a bad, like another version of this movie does not have that conversation. I think it's to create a false sense of trust in Sal. Yes, well, sure. And it's because he's just had this experience with with uh, Jade, with Jade, yeah, and uh, Mookie's sister, Mookie's Jade. sister. And we're like, is he leering? Is he weird? Is he actually a good person? Does he care about the people in this community or not? And then Spike literalizes it. Mm-hmm. In, in Sal's voice, he says, I'm proud to have fed the people in this community. That right. means a lot to me. I'm staying. Right. And it indicates his own personal pride of ownership, his own relationship with the, the customers that he's had over the years, and also his defiance of what he views as a kind of insolence in his son. But that's not all of Sal. That's just something he's saying. It doesn't mean it's how he completely feels. And then 10 minutes later, we see a different thing that he feels. Yeah. Which is he hates rap and right. he hates being confronted and he hates the idea of an aggressive black person in his face trying to control his business. Right. And he's hateful about it. Yeah. Takes and, out a baseball bat and beats the shit out of the boom box. Yeah. And so it, it's the same thing as Martin and Malcolm. Yeah. yeah. Sal is both. Yep. Sal's got love and Sal's got hate. Everybody in the movie has both. That's the genius of the movie. Completely. Mother, sister. Is full of both. Yes. She's so mad at Ozzie Davis. She's so mad at the mayor 
Except when she loves him. Right. Well, also, she's fine with Sal's being there, but when they burn, when the pizzeria is on fire, she's screaming, burn it down, burn it down. Yes. Like, this movie, like, I'm now I'm really going to, like, maybe lose it because, because it's so good at, like, how can you not get emotional? But it's just a part, like, the, the risk, and I don't know if Spike Lee would sort of classify his the way that he wrote these characters and directed the actors to play them as 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 risky but there's not a single person in this movie with the exception possibly of Jade who is just purely good whatever we mean by good right um and i just think that that is just a being a person you know like the degree to which all these people are people are just people with high stakes. And the 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 last the last most rewatchable scene is the of course the final sequence, the extended final sequence. Now I would say that that also exists in the kind of most unwatchable, mm. can't look away, painful. It's not in your. It's not in the wedding crashers montage category of most rewatchable. <sighs> it's in the. This is this is hard to confront but what he's trying to do here. Filmmaking is so good in that it sequence. Is. Like the camera angle where they're where they kind of tumble into the pizzeria yep. or they tumble out of it when when the when the melee breaks out, the the jump cut where the the trash can going through the window is repeated I think 3 times. That's the only part of the movie and I think it might be the only example in Spike's history of where he storyboarded. He doesn't storyboard any movie, hmm. but in that particular sequence, him and Dickerson storyboard exactly what happens as soon as Smiley bugging out and Radio Rahim enter the pizzeria and then hmm. everything that happens for the rest of the film, hmm. which is notable because hmm. that precision is important. And it's amazing that they were so precise and the ending was so misunderstood and miscalculated by people. Because people don't, I mean, here's the thing about the response to them. Wait, wait, you left something off the list. Yeah, sure. What, what, what else? The racial slur montage. Oh, yeah. I know. I, you know, he's done that a few more times now, and so it's gotten less effective for me over time. Like, oh, interesting. There's a 25th hour version of that, yes, too, where yes. Ed Norton's it's not looking as, in the mirror. It's not, as, it's, not as, it's not as good. It's not as good. I mean, 25th hour is is great, but yeah. um, or it has greatness in it. Yeah. Um, but that one, I mean, because... It exposes, it gives everybody, it gives all the, fa- it establishes what the factions are in the movie. Yeah. And it it lets everybody let off some steam about what they would claim to stereotypically not like about the other people in the movie. Yes. There's no reason to include the bodega owner, except he gets to go on a rant about like, like an anti-Semitic rant about, about Mayor Koch. Yep. Um, there's a really funny story that Turturro tells about working on the movie where Spike invited him to watch dailies. And after they watch the dailies of that sequence where he gives his speech, which is pretty rough. That is, I mean, but I will say it is exquisitely well delivered. Oh, Turturro is amazing in this right. movie, yeah. but Turturro says, um, Hey man, uh, people in New York are really going to hate me and I ride the subway. So what I'm going to need you to do is get on the cover of Ebony magazine with your arm around me so, so, so that I can be protected going forward, which I thought was pretty good. Uh, um, but there is like, there, like his is, his is the best of that sequence, yeah. right? Yeah. Like he, I can best quote, written, best delivery. I can quote the, I can quote the, the, the awfulness 
And the take your fucking pizza and go the fuck back to Africa, you fucking, I'm not going to say the rest, but it is, it's just, it's great. I, I don't, I think that's an extremely rewatchable scene despite everything. It is. What's, so what's your, is that your pick? Um, Rosie dancing, bugging out in the wall of fame, the fire hydrant, Sal and Pino, the racial slurs, and then the, the final showdown, the extended sequence at the end really chewing on this one well i just you know it's funny because i every time i don't know how every time i I watch this show or listen to it i don't know let's not explore the intellectual hopscotch of the rewatchables let's just pick (laughs) because we have gamified something with no winner yeah that's true uh i'm gonna go at rosie perez love it i'm gonna go at rosie perez i'm choosing the end um, but Rosie is a close second because uh, she's an important person. What's age the best? I'll run down just a few of these. You can tell me where you want to chat about. Public Enemy. Mm. Fight the Power appears in this movie over 20 times. Mm. We got to fight the power, that be. Fight the power. Fight the power. Fight the power. Amazing song. Obviously hugely important artist. This song was written specifically for the movie because Spike approached Chuck D and said, I need an anthem. Mm. And this is what Chuck returned. Jesus Christ. Lee's unforgiving view of the clash between generations and races, which is mm. a huge part of this story. Mm-hmm. Ozzie Davis and Ruby D mm. as the mayor and mother sister. Spike Lee, comma, movie star. Mm. I feel like that works. I feel like, is Spike good in this movie? No, but he's, <laughs> no. I mean, look, but he doesn't, the great thing about this movie, another great thing is that he doesn't need to be a good actor, right? He needs to have that? a kind of authority, right? Yeah. And all he's really doing is giving a charismatic version, doing a charismatic version of a thing that really good movies have had lots of, which is which are people at the center who aren't the best actors, but they've got something. It's true. Right. And he, in unlike a lot of those people, he's not dead on screen. And this is basically the last time he put himself in the center of one of his movies, right? Yeah, he's a side piece in pretty much everything else. That's really interesting. Um, keep going. Danny Aiello. Mm. I th- I, you know, he was nominated and was recognized in his time. Still powerhouse performance. Mm-hmm. Uh, Robin Harris, <laughs> who I miss and who yeah, I loved. Everybody and it's so funny to watch Sweet Dick Willie, one of the funniest characters in the movie. I mentioned Ernest Dickerson's cinematography. The red wall, mm. the musty sepia tone in Sal's, mm. the pink room in mm. Jay's room, mm-hmm. Senor Love Daddy Studio, the way that he shoots all of these spaces. Which is great. Incredible stuff. Uh, Mr. Softy, <laughs> Clarion Call of the Summer. Oh, man. I forgot about Mr. Softy. Using direct address into the camera as a style, which mm-hmm. has been now jacked by basically the whole Everybody. indie revolution that came after him. Mm-hmm. Wes Anderson probably more than anybody. Mm-hmm. Uh. And then I got one other thing that I think is interesting. Mm. So there's this long time clash between Spike and Tarantino. Mm-hmm. I had forgotten that in this movie, there are two things that Quentin Tarantino stole. Mm. One is you shoot me in a dream, you better wake up and apologize. Right. Which is something that I think Robin Harris says yes. in the movie, which later appears in Reservoir Dogs. Which you comes shoot out. me in a dream, you better wake up and apologize. Yes. That's one. The That's other one. really bad Robin Harris. I was not bad, but. 
he's he's well, Robin what, Harris. Was it Robin Harris or was it Harvey Keitel? You know, right. you could hardly tell in your impression there. The <laughs> other thing is the whole where did uh the, the, you need to stop? Well, Sicilians and 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 Africans and the Moors and that whole speech that appears in True Romance, which is also something that Mookie essentially says to Pino right. when they're having a conversation right. in cells. That's another rewatchable conversation, by the way. True Romance? No, the oh that the, scene. The, the Prince Eddie Murphy, blacker than right. black, more than black. You're right. I forgot. I do have right. that in best quotes, That's, but that is also a yeah. great scene. But those two things, along with a bunch of other things that Spike has done in, over the years in his career, I think that Spike, and he's never said this, but I think Spike is like, this dude ripped me off a couple of times. It's not like this movie came out in 1965. It came out <laughs> three years before Reservoir Dogs yeah. and was a hugely important movie. And there are things just directly from it. I've never heard anybody address that. Huh. So that's ha- interesting. Has there is there beef aging well because of this? Mm. Okay, so I would say what um, else is on your list? Anything? The thing that's aged the best. I mean, I think it's the movie's sort of timelessness. Mm-hmm. I mean, it might be the movie itself. Yep. Um, it, and and just everything that's contained in the movie. I love the idea of of Ozzy Davis and Ruby D, two legendary actors who never for all kinds of obvious racism related reasons never quite got, I mean, Ozzie Davis could cast himself in things and direct them in and cast her and they had great stage careers, but this was a love letter. This was a, like a salty love letter to their love um, and to their importance. And Ozzie was in school days. Yes. He was um, in school days. Ruby was not in school days. No, not uh, as far. I don't, no, I don't, she wasn't in school days. Is that, um, your, is that your But vote? they were in Jungle Fever together. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So is, is Ozzy and Ruby here? Uh, no, I think the thing Just the film? I think the film. And, and you know, the what was the first one? Uh, Public Enemy? Yeah. I think that's obviously another one, right? Where I never get tired of hearing that song, even though I am probably have heard it about 11,000 times at this point. It has to be the kind of song that you're not annoyed to hear again. And it's not, I, you know, it is it is an anthem. It's, it's, a, it's an a loud anthem. and aggressive and plain spoken song. Yeah. So, but there's kind of a, a great musicality to mm-hmm. it. Um, the samples are just perfect. And you know, it's the kind of song where I've tried to do it at karaoke and you kind of, the breath work there, like lots of, lots of rap. It's hard to rap when you're not a rapper because you just have to have the lung capacity to, to, to do it. I will say also as a person who spent almost 10 years writing rap criticism, there is no way to mimic Chuck D. He is the most no. unreproducible vocal intonation in the history of the genre. What he was doing was different from everybody else. He was not smooth. Mm-mm. He was not melodic. He was muscular. He was very powerful. Right, right. And he was off kilter in a way. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. the idea of anybody else being able to do what he did and being able to work with the Shockleys and Eric Sadler and that whole crew from right. the Bomb Squad, that w- that's just also much like this movie. That whole little five-year window of Public Enemy is just a miracle of music. Also, the harmony with Flava Flav, right? I 100%. mean, you don't really give their relationship a lot of credit music musicologically, but the thing about Flava Flav, and, you know, there's been a lot written about the problems of Flava Flav, like the, the history that his mere physical presence invokes. Yep. Why do we have to look at this person bringing up a hundred, like, you know, 250 years of mental state? I'm going to look at it. 
That, it. that also felt like an active comment, though. Like the whole design of Public Enemy was a Sean, comment on why that. Are you I know you know. I'm just saying, we like, just got to say these things so that people don't repeat them poorly. Now, Flav, obviously, when he became a sort of reality star, he complicated some of that conversation. It's not an easy answer. Okay, there you I'm go. Just You're right. We're saying, just looking for like, the, the history of this stuff, he embodies it, and people were made uncomfortable by it. But just as music, the two of them together, because you can, whenever I hear that song and I'm not singing it, like when, just when we were just talking about it right now, I can hear Flav under 1989, Another Summer. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just perfect. It's a math equation. The two of them together, it just, that's the music, right? In addition to all of the sort of hard percussive throbbing of the song. Agree. Um, there's, there's real beautiful sound between those two voices. Um, yeah, it's that, that's your winner. Fight the power. What's age the worst? There's not a lot here. Um, if I'm being rude, (laughs) I, this this is Rosie Perez's first movie and you can tell. Yeah. Well, she's given the thing that's aged the worst about what she has to do in the movie is what she has to do in the movie, which is like, like browbeat this man for being a shitty dad. Yeah, and I think, and uh, yeah, yes. She is morally in the right. She is circumstantially in the right, but there's something about, you know, there's something about the way she's made to be unpleasant. But even she, I mean, she's got two dimensions. She is perfectly lovable and seducible and willing to like let him run ice along, like, you know, up and down her chest. But she's also gonna like attack him for not being a good son to Hector. I think that's the other thing that has not aged well is the nude scene and the way that she's talked about shooting the nude scene. It's evident that she was not terribly comfortable. What did with the she way say? That that was done. She said, uh, I think 10 or so years ago, my first experience with doing nude scenes was do the right thing. And I had a big problem with it, mainly because I was afraid of what my family would think. Mm-hmm. That was what was really bothering me. It wasn't really about taking off my clothes, but I also didn't feel good about it because the atmosphere wasn't correct. Mm. And when Spike Lee puts ice cubes on my nipples, the reason you don't see my head is because I was I'm just crying. about to say, I was yeah. like, I don't want to do this that's not great that's obviously not how you want to make a movie so that has not aged well wait hold on i didn't know that it's sad i love rosie perez she's phenomenal she's she's like one of my favorite she's like a like a reason i would wake up in the morning even and even as an i don't and the idea that i mean i'm sure i wonder what spike would say like an apology to her for making her feel the way if he hasn't already apologized they have they i know that they are in i know they're good interviews with them recently it's not this isn't a war it's i think she's just honestly reflecting on what was a bad experience for her right um and obviously she doesn't have her career as a movie star without this movie so that is also there's nuance there yeah that, that this well i mean experience. there's there's like a history of how women become famous there 100 really percent. that is totally a factor um and she, i think she feels both things God. and and i think honestly within like one or two movies i mean white man can't jump is not that it's, it's pretty soon after this and she's amazing in that movie so she her great run between that movie and fearless, fearless totally. and um what's the other one we're missing there's a there's a third one and she's just She's oh um the Marissa Tomei movie, um on, uh what's the one they work in a in a in a in a diner or a restaurant, it's her and Marissa Tomei they're waitresses, and it's called, it's the it was called originally Baboon Heart oh Untamed Heart Untamed Heart that's, that's right yeah um and is it Downey Jr. who's I think the guy it's Christian Slater Christian right? Slater yeah yeah she's also really good in that movie Rosie Perez really. Oh man, I I just love. There's some actors where it's just completely irrational, but 
I, Rosie Perez, Marissa Tomei is another one of those people, but Rosie Perez for me is a person who also, like, why weren't there more, like, Latina women in the movies? Because Rosie Perez is the answer for how it could go. Because you had people making original things that was very easy to just cast Rosie Perez in, and she did nothing but enliven the circumstances. How many, I would love to know who else auditioned for that part in Fearless, for instance. Oh, God, I don't know. I mean, there was not a lot of attention paid in Fearless or in White Men Can't Jump, I don't think, to the fact that she was a Latino. No, like, no, I, not it, at all. It was not really a talking but point. But that's, that's my point. Yeah. There was a moment where this woman became a very good character actress and a little bit of a star Yep. without having to go through some racial crucible. She just was like, you were just grateful she was there. Things and are it, always changing though. It's like things feel right. worse now than ever where if you put a character like that in a movie, then there has to be some sort of explication about their identity. Yep. It's all, it's all cyclical. Casting what ifs. I only found one. Mm. Do you know what it is? Hmm. He wasn't going to play Mookie. No, I think that that was always the plan. Spike Lee campaigned for Robert De Niro as Sal. Oh, I did owner. know this. I did know this. I but did know De- this. De Niro had to decline due to prior commitments. Better or worse movie with De Niro? Different movie. How so? It becomes a De Niro movie. It becomes the movie about how Robert De Niro is a racist or something. You know what I mean? Like, it just is a different movie. I think maybe it makes more money and maybe like there's an mm. argument for like like maybe getting it closer to best picture. Mm. But I don't know. Danny Aiello was still nominated for best supporting actor, so that didn't really help. I don't know, but I definitely think that the thing that makes the movie special is that everybody you're watching in it is equal in some way. And I think that De Niro, I mean, despite you know, with all due respect to to Ruby D and, and and Ossie Davis, the way that you're watching this world unfold, everybody is presented as equal. And it's not as though Ossie Davis and Ruby D are American popular culturally. They're not Robert De Niro. And Robert De Niro completely tips the the engagement balance. So and I also think it's a lot easier to to like to bring your Robert De Niro baggage with you to this movie. I completely So that agree. when he is, so that when he does like beat Radio Raheem's radio, like you're kind of like, yeah, yeah, De Niro did it. Right. De Niro did it. Right. You, you, you might be more likely to, he might've been cheered in a way that he, I don't think Sal is cheered. Even from the most confused viewer, there's like a, there was a, De Niro is a rooting interest for some right, people. Right, exactly. I mean, he just it just is a different movie. It's a morally yeah. different movie if De Niro is. And who it. is Danny Aiello at this time? He's Moonstruck. I mean, what like what is he his... is he is the he is one he's a that guy. Yeah. He's a that guy. I mean, he like to me, he was that guy in Moonstruck. He also had a part in oh, he's something else right before Do the Right Thing. He's got a very small role in Godfather 2. He's got a very small role in a handful of movies yeah. like that. He's, he's always not like crime a, movies. Yeah. But he's not, he's not Robert De Niro. Let's take one more quick break to hear from Heinz. Heinz mayonnaise transforms ordinary foods into an unforgettably creamy experience. You may forget your coworkers' names, your mom's birthday, or what happened three seasons ago on that show everyone's talking about, but you'll never forget a delicious potato salad made with creamy Heinz mayonnaise. Foods made with Heinz mayonnaise won't just be the unforgettably creamy highlight of your week. They may well be the highlight of your 30s. Slather it onto a mouth-watering turkey club, incorporate it into your tuna salad, mix it into a luscious garlic aioli, layer it on a thick cheddar cheeseburger, or spread it on a BLT. And because of the unforgettable creaminess, hours later, you'll be telling everyone with an earshot just how good it is. 
So leave the boring old blah mayonnaise on the shelf where it belongs and try something new. Try unforgettably creamy Heinz mayonnaise and the new Heinz mashups, Mayo Chup, Mayo Q, Mayo Must, and Cranch. The Dion Waiters Award for the biggest heat check. <laughs> Can't wait to hear the nominees for this one. Bill Nunn as Radio Rahim. Mm. D, motherfucker, D! <laughs> Robin Harris as Sweet Dick Willie. Mm. Rosie Perez. I wrote down three. You could probably do 10 or 12. I, Sam Jackson probably. Mar- is Martin, Sam, Lawrence. Martin Lawrence. Martin Lawrence. Is, is this Martin Lawrence's first role? The first time I'd seen him. Um, I think Roger Maybe Grenevere I'd seen Smith. him do some, some stand-up. But, yeah, yeah. He was a I'd comic never seen at that him point. Before. Hmm. I think Heat Check is a tricky one here because every character basically gets yeah. like one and a half scenes with the exception of Mookie and Sal and Pino. And Robin Harris isn't really like in on the plot. No, you know? not at all. He's he's a he's like something you just throw in the pot. Yes. Because it'll make it taste a little bit better. He's mm-hmm. a bay leaf. And he's not, I mean, he's also like never alone. Right. You know, he's always with Frankie Faison. And, uh, and who's the third actor that he's with all the time? Oh, I can't remember the guy is, who is plays. It Paul uh, Benjamin? Yes. Paul Benjamin. Yeah, yeah. Um, who, who, who else? Who else would you put on the list? I mean... I mean, it's like, this is crazy. John Savage. Yeah. John Savage. As a white boy. Yeah. Yeah. John Savage. We didn't crazy, it. crazy to say it, we but didn't, John Savage. That is a rewatchable in, scene. In the is, Larry Bird jersey. He's bugging out, getting his foot run over, right. his Jordans run over. Yo! You just said over to Jordan! Just like that. You just said over to Jordan! Not only did you now, you step on my brand new white Air Jordans that I just bought. And that's all you can say is, excuse me? Are you serious? Yeah, I'm serious. I'll fuck you up quick two times. Two times! Who told you to step on my sneakers? Who told you to walk on my side of the block? Who told you to be in my neighborhood? Do you know that John Savage used to tell a story that- Yo, the- your shit is fucked up! <laughs> <laughs> that's Martin Lawrence. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the, John Savage tells a story that the Larry Bird shirt he's wearing, the shirzy he's wearing in the scene- this, yeah was given to him by Larry Bird yeah. because his sister used to go out with Larry Bird and that's how he got the shirt. Wait, Robin? His sister, John Savage? Yes, yes. His sister, Robin, who now hosts a radio show yes. in, 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 in Boston? Yes, that story, Robin Young? Though, that story oh, no, is apocryphal because no. Spike has debunked it and I watched him debunk it in a featurette to John Savage's face where he made him reveal that that is an untrue story because Spike bought that shirt in a store Gave it to Ruth E. Carter, the costume designer of this movie and the costume designer on many of Spike's movies, and Ruth Carter gave it to John Savage. So that's a fake story. Interesting. John Savage is a pretty good pick. You sure you want to pick a white guy for the heat check? I'm not scared. Okay. What, what, who, who, what's going to happen? You're in charge. <laughs> he's also the one person who has, he's got one scene makes a memorable appearance. I mean, he didn't make most rewatchable scene, but he could have. And I think that that is, that, that is a heat check moment. I will just say it. I don't care what race the person is. I don't see color. I was born in Brooklyn. No. <laughs> oh! <laughs> okay. Uh, half-assed internet research. There's a lot going on here. I'm going to read you some stuff and try oh, not to bore you, okay? Okay. Spike Lee first got the idea for this film after watching the Alfred Hitchcock Presents episode Shopping for Death where the main characters discuss their theory that hot weather increases violent tendencies. It was also inspired, as you mentioned, by the Howard Beach racial racial incident and Eleanor Bumpers. Lee wrote the screenplay in two weeks. The original script to Do the Right Thing ends with a stronger reconciliation between Mookie and Sal. 
Sal's comments to Mookie mirror the mayor's earlier comments in the film and hint at some common ground and perhaps Sal's understanding of why Mookie was motivated to destroy his restaurant. It is unclear why Lee changed the ending. Because it's better the way it is. That's why. Pretty clear to me. I'm just throwing that out there. I completely agree with you. I've got the street. Can you imagine how bad that would have been? If he had like, I mean, I I think it would have been easy to... I don't think the movie would have been remembered in the same way. I, don't, right. I think it would have been less re- well remembered in a way because it's not it's not as provocative. It is not as nuanced. It's not, it's more Hollywood. I also think that there's something about this movie that really was a Rorschach test in in the sense that 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 white people and not only white people, but I mean, I think white people had been conditioned to understand that 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 a movie about race could only happen on their terms. Mm-hmm, right mm-hmm. where you could get a movie about a black person and a white person but the white person there could be nothing wrong with the white person because the white person is perfect and believes in integration and racial reconciliation and that everybody should and could get along and there's nothing to feel bad about because look we solved racism in these two hours um i think that the irresponsibility people left at spike lee's feet was their inability to wrap their brains around this problem that a movie didn't solve. And the movie is saying, it's not my job to solve it. This is, this is like, you think I can solve 400 years of this shit? No, I can't do that. And it's not my job. My job is to present the degrees to which it is unsolvable. It's much more like going to see a play than it is watching a movie. A lot of movies tie the bow. A lot of plays cut the bow. And this movie cuts the bow. And it says, good luck trying to put it back together again. This film was shot entirely on Stuyvesant Avenue between Quincy Street and Lexington Avenue. Well, if you had it the whole time, Sean, when I was digging on my phone trying to find the cross streets, you could have just said it. The street's color scheme was heavily altered by the production designer who used a great deal of red and orange paint to help Mm. convey the sense of a heat wave. It was really perfect. That's just such a perfect choice. To I mean, it seems obvious, but it's a perfect choice. During filming, the neighborhood's crack dealers threatened the film crew for disturbing their business, so Lee hired Fruit of Islam members to provide security. I remember this. Samuel L. Jackson later revealed that he spent most of his time on set sleeping as he had no scenes outside. (laughs) Uh, The film was released to protest for many reviewers, which we noted. In a 2014 interview, Lee stated, that still bugs the shit out of me, calling the remarks, quote, outrageous, egregious, and I think racist. Mm -hmm. And further elaborating, I don't remember people saying people were going to come out of theaters killing people after they watched an Arnold Schwarzenegger film. Mm -hmm. It's crazy. That was bad. That was really. It just is just, if you are on the record, I mean, I feel like you need to take a, like a, like a, you can take a little bit of that Roger Ebert and just sprinkle it all over the. The rest of that stuff. Not everybody can be Raj. I've been protecting it's, Raj on this show for a long time. <laughs> I mean, God bless you. Um, it's just crazy to me that idea that you could say. I mean, I'm trying to think of some things that I have written in moral, in moral aggrievement, and moral disgust, in in outrage. Um, I candidly try to stay away from that as a an approach to. To movies. It might not be the place you start. Like, I don't know. It would take something extra special. Like, I'm more interested in winding up at that place. I'm not, I don't, it's, it's hard for me to, to start there because I might risk, I want to keep you with me. Yeah, I mean, right? one, one thing that we talk about on the show all the time that I think is kind of a controversial idea is what's age the worst because it's impossible to go into 1989 and say, 
I remember exactly how I felt and I remember the exact state of the culture. Mm. And so what we need to do now is adjudicate it. And I think we're kind of disagreeing on this show all the time, trying to figure out what's the right way to kind of um, put a moral valence on everything that happens in this movie. That's not really the right way to solve the problem. The thing about this movie is it is presented as a morality play. Right. Purposefully. Yes. So it's different. So it demands that we interrogate that. But there's something about race especially during this period, but really still, that just short circuits people's common sense. Yeah. Like they just can't, like they just aren't watching this movie that was made for them. They are reacting to a thing that's inside them that they are bringing to this movie. It's true. Right. I mean, the idea that it's this movie's fault if Dinkins loses the fucking election. It also, I have to say, I must say, it really speaks to this movie's power. I mean, the thing like the the thing that Roger Ebert is talking about about a movie like just staying on the screen and the movies that like pierce your soul. Joe Klein, David Denby, Stanley Crouch, all these dudes had their souls pierced, even if they don't recognize that that's what happened. That's so you, true. You don't say these things if a movie has not gotten way in here, because it is making you feel something that. You don't want to feel, and you want to blame Spike Lee for making you feel this. You want to blame your hopes and dreams on a, a David Dinkins mayorship, on a, like not happening because of this movie that's you know in the scheme of things not going to make that much money in 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 the summer of Weekend at Bernie's and what what else is happening that year? Uh, Batman's on its way. That's right. Sex Lives and Videotape on its way. Didn't make that much money either. But but the point is... Similarly changed culture, though. And, and reviews like this that you're describing changed culture. And they drew more attention to the movie. And they ultimately benefit Spike's persona as a maverick independent filmmaker. And so in the same way that the movie is larded with all this nuance, and you can't just say it's good or bad, weirdly, perhaps unfortunately, because I don't think it's doing anything beneficial to society, but... Press like that, criticism like that, which draws attention and then becomes the center of controversy, draws more attention to the movie. Right. And it plays a part in this idea of kind of show personship mm-hmm. and the idea that everything is an event and analyzing it from every angle, even the dumbest angle possible, <laughs> is beneficial to career, the film, et cetera. But there's, I mean, I'm trying to think of another movie. Let's think of some other things that have like produced this kind of outrage, right? Or like fear, basic instinct, not the fear so much, but it was more the, shock, I think. Or well, scandal, there was scandal? concern. There was concern though about whether or not basic instinct was going to what effect it was going to have. I think there's a lot on the, of on, like a little bit on the gay community, but mostly like that's true. You're right. Um, but the other, but. That's a different fear, right? I think there's been a lot of retroactive energy on the Matrix about this. Ooh. Not just red what? pill, blue pill. Oh, right. Oh, okay. Violence. Yep. Yep. Living inside the internet. Oh, yeah. All, yeah, yeah. all of that, the way that we are deprogrammed by certain mm-hmm. ideas. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. wasn't at the time as much of a, a driving incident, though. Well, it's funny because I actually remember seeing the Matrix. I mean, now we're on a tangent, but like I remember seeing the Matrix and thinking that the battery, human battery revelation, I was like, this is it. We this should, is the thing that I knew was true that? the whole time. No, I'm just saying, <laughs> I I believed in that in that argument, right? Okay. The idea that humanity is basically either at this place or headed very much so between that movie and Wally, I'm like, 
we're set for life because the thing that we will not admit is happening to us is like literally in Wally, there are people, I have seen people at the airport, like under blankets, just waiting for their flights. I don't know if they're going to be able to get up because they are like grown into the seat because they're on their phone. It's just crazy. How do they even get to the airport? I don't know. It's like they've been there for a hundred years. Scooter. I, <laughs> all the scooters. I've got a couple more half-assed internet research items. Okay. Spike remarked that he has only ever been asked by white viewers whether Mookie did the right thing. Black viewers do not ask the question. <laughs> Lee believes the key point is that Mookie was angry at the death of Radio Rahim and that viewers who question the riot's justification are implicitly failing to see the difference between property and the life of a black man. In Lee's 20, 2006 film Inside Man, the police provide Sal's pizza to the hostages. Oh, uh, yeah. In 2016, Air Jordan released a special Radio Rahim sneaker based on the colors of the shirt that he wears in the film. And in 2014, the 25th anniversary of the film, Barack and Michelle Obama praised the film and said they went to see it together on their first date. Yeah. Nice little pocket history of America there. Yep. One more quick break for Hotel Tonight. Here's an insider travel secret from Hotel Tonight. There are tons of empty hotel rooms out there just waiting to be booked. Hotel Tonight teams up with awesome hotels to help them sell these rooms and then passes those savings along to you. It's your one-stop shop for booking cool top-rated hotels at incredible values. Their name is Hotel Tonight, but you can actually book in advance. Perfect for planners and procrastinators alike. This summer, you can score an extra amazing deal with Hotel Tonight's Daily Drop feature. In most cities, you can use Daily Drop to unlock a special deal at a hotel selected just for you. Once your deal is unlocked, move quickly. You'll only have 15 minutes to book. If you want to swipe again, you can unlock a new deal every day. It's a great way to take an even more spontaneous trip because you never know what you're going to get. From staycations to weekend getaways, great hotel deals are just one swipe away. So go to hoteltonight.com or download the app to unlock your daily drop. Apex Mountain. (laughs) I think it's an interesting question if this is Spike at the peak of his powers. Yes. The peak of his filmmaking powers, yes. Absolutely, hundred percent, yes. No, no, not Malcolm X. No, not I don't know. Twenty fifth hour, no. not Mobetta because Blues. The, the the peak that he this the apex. What about four little girls? See, this is this is an interesting conversation. Like he he is one of the best nonfiction filmmakers ever, right? And the thing, and I don't know what he would say about. Um, what his relationship is to figuring out how to make those movies. But part of their greatness is he has to figure them out after he shot them. And the problem with some of his movies, even his very good ones, is sometimes the screenwriting. This is a Black Klansman thing too. There's some parts of that movie which I think are very effective and there's some parts of it where I'm like, I don't really understand this story. Right. How did this movie end? Right. I mean, sometimes there's perfection, like Inside Man is perfection. Incredible. And a lot of that perfection, I mean, I think the thing, the reason that I'm saying do the right thing is the apex of his filmmaking, um, at least his, his, his fiction filmmaking, is that the screenplay is perfect. I mean, Tom Schulman won the Oscar, but that is the real travesty, right? I could have lived with, I mean, I'm, I don't care if it didn't get a Best Picture nomination, like, I I would never have expected it to. It's remembered because Driving Miss Daisy won. Right, that's why you know and that's did, been adjudicated did, over and over. Did again. y'all just move to America? Because <laughs> I just don't. I don't know. Under there are no circumstances, even in 2019, where 
Do the Right Thing is winning Best Picture over anything. I, I hate to break it to everybody. Not happening. But the not winning of the, of the original screenplay category, of uh, uh, screenplay Oscar, is just crazy. It is. Apex Mountain, Danny Aiello? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's the best performance he ever gave in a movie. Right. He's Tur- great. Turturro? No. no. What, what would be your Turturro Apex, do you know? Oh, there's so many. Some of them in Spike Lee movies, right? He's so good in Jungle Fever. Yeah. He's so good in Jungle Fever. Yeah. I mean, but come on. Barton Fink, he's really good at directing himself. Like, he's good in all the movies he makes it with himself. He's good in that Transformers movie. <laughs> I mean, I'm just like, off the top of my head, great Totoro. He, oh my God, Gloria Bell? I was hoping we would get into Transformers on this podcast, so I appreciate you bringing that John up. John Totoro, never a dull moment with that man, and he gets sexier as he ages. Wow. Did you see Gloria Bell? I did. Um, I don't want to spoil Gloria Bell for people who haven't seen it. I, I felt a, gr- a, a great deal of pain for his character. Oh, sure. But nonetheless. Like a real sadness. But, but Shut up. Before, okay. before we even get there, he's just sexy now. Okay. He was not sure. sexy. Barton Fink wasn't sexy. No, well, purposefully. I don't Pino, think the character's Pino, well, designed okay, to be sexy. I understand okay, okay, that. Okay. Right. But I'm just saying, like, he is. The mink? Is he the mink? No. What's his name? What's his character's name in Miller's Crossing? Oh, uh, oh fuck! Oh, this, 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 this. he's also really good in that too. Yeah. Um, is it the Mink? No, I think that's Buscemi. I, I shame on me. The, the one Irish gangster movie I can't remember the name of the character. Oh, um, who else? Apex Mountain. Anybody else? You got a lot of people here who you're like, who is that? Who is Sam Jackson? Who is Rosie right, Perez? Right, right, right. Who is Martin Lawrence? But nobody's... But nobody I mean, at the peak of their powers, right? I mean, it's the, the Apex Mountain the Spike. Okay. Joey Pants Award for that guy. I mentioned Frank Vincent. Yeah. One he, of the all-time it could always, guys. It could always be... Right, I was going to say, it could always be Frank Vincent. Frankie Faison, who mm-hmm. I think people would later know as like a from The Wire and a lot of films over the years. Roger Guinevere Smith, mm-hmm. who we've talked about now. Miguel Sandoval as one of the cops. Who else? I don't Giancarlo know. Esposito used to be. Yes, until Breaking Bad. Used yeah. to be the winner of this category. Yeah. Six years ago, and now no more. I don't know. I guess it would have to be Faison. Okay. I cool. mean, Frank Vincent is, I mean, I guess it's Frank Vincent because it's always Frank Vincent. Yeah. I That's agree. why he's in this movie Completely. in some weird way. Do you think he has moved beyond that guyness? No. Okay. Saul Rubinek Award for overacting. Oh, God, I did I write down Giancarlo it. Esposito here. That was your pick? I wouldn't pick I him. know bugging out is meant to be bugging out. That's the whole point. And I know that an overperformance is purposeful. But there are times when I'm like, chill. Like maybe, maybe, not, maybe not so much. We're losing some of the subtlety of this. It's Ruby Day. Oh, my God. It's Ruby Day. I'm just going to say it. <laughs> Wow, I thought I was taking a chance by going after Esposito. Well, there's something about mother sister that like like makes all the sense in the world for the, for her being for her doing too much. But it's not that so much it's not so much that it's a terrible it's not a bad performance, but there's something about the burning it down part where I'm just like I'm still in shock by it mm-hmm. and I think my my choice of it being her is that I'd like mother sister too. <laughs> Oh, no. Oh, no. Yeah, it's more of that. I accept. It's not even that Ruby D's bad. I don't have a single nit to pick. 
We've said we've said this is a and perfect movie about, a bunch of times. I mean, we did talk about Tina. Yeah, and Rosie Perez. Yeah, I to me that's not like a storytelling problem. Oh yeah, you know, so like I don't fair, I don't fair. think that there's anything that happens in the that's movie. That's an like, extra. Why did that happen? That's an extra diegetic problem. Right. Yes. I think the key knit uh, to pick is that there are a lot of people who are like, why did Mookie do that? But we're not we're not <laughs> we're not having that conversation. Best quote. There's a bunch of them. I I did write down, which is something that had gotten past me in the past, but rewatching it, Black Panther eat pizza, we eat oh, pizza. Oh, yeah. Holding the comic book. I did not notice it until I watched it, what, six months ago? That was uh, in the in the age of Ryan Coogler. Did not notice that. That feels like a very meaningful thing. Once again, Spike time. ahead of the fucking curve on everything. 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 I mean, just think for a second about what your relationship was to your sneakers before like 1986. Completely. In many ways, responsible for inventing that cult of sneakerhead. Right. I mean, many arguments to be made against it, but just think about the idea that it wasn't Nike that did this necessarily. It was Spike Lee. Spike imagined the rock starification of NBA star in that yeah. way. Yeah. Um, let's just hear the whole Radio Raheem. Let me tell you the story of the right hand, left hand. Let me tell you the story of right hand, left hand. It's a tale of good and evil. Hey. It was with this hand that Cain iced his brother. Love. These five fingers, they go straight to the soul of man. The right hand, the hand of love. The story of life is this. Static. One hand is always fighting the other hand. And the left hand is kicking much ass. I mean, it looks like the right hand love is finished. But hold on, stop the presses. The right hand's coming back. Yeah, he got the left hand on the ropes now. That's right. Yeah. Ooh, it's a devastating right and hate is hurt. Down. Ooh, ooh, left hand hate KO'd by love. If I love you, I love you. But if I hate you, there it is, love and hate. I love you, bro. Sweet Dick Willie. You want to boycott someone? You want to start with the goddamn barber that fucked up your head. Might be the funniest line in the movie. Um, I thought of this when Spike won an Oscar last year. The conversation between the mayor and, and Mookie when he says, always do the right thing. And yeah. Mookie says, that's it? And he says, that's it. He says, I got, got it. it. I'm, I'm gone. gone. Yeah. That's good. Yo, Mookie. What? Stay black. Yeah. Uh, I like the roll call that oh, Senor Love Daddy call. gives. Ah, the roll call. Let's just stop right there. True. That's the best. That's the best. I mean, because, and I will say Such like- a good diverse collection as, of artists. As a person who liked all the music, the idea that there was a, there was a movie and a black artist- who could really stand there and say, in a movie dominated by Public Enemy and that one song. But really, I mean, there's all kinds of great, I mean, you know you can't stand it. You can't stand it. You know you can't stand it. You can't stand the heat. I put another bar in there that didn't need to be there, but you can't stand the heat. I mean- You've sung and danced on this episode. I don't think take you, six. I don't think you got that note. I can't hit that. I'm not take six. There's a there's take a, six is perfect. A giant Keith Sweat poster in this movie. Oh and my a god! Giant Tracy Chapman the, poster the, in this movie. Well, the the great thing about the roll call 
And I don't know that anybody, because now, like, after that movie, every every rap act had some kind of radio roll call something. Yep. I mean, it's like, who, I mean, Mutume, Trey, did you write it down? Do you I know? did. Okay. You want me to read everybody? M- it's a lot of folks. Can I remember? Can I see if I can remember? I'm not going to get everybody. There's literally it's- 60 names here. The thing that's good about it is- <laughs> Did I write it down it's, when it's I a, watched it the It's last a time little mini it? history of, of black music. It's it's Branford Marsalis right next to Force MDs, right next to Bob Marley, right next to Bessie Smith. Mm-hmm. They're all in the list. Whitney mm-hmm. Houston is here, as is Jackie Wilson. There's a Whitney Houston poster in the studio, too. There is. Um, as Senor Love Daddy says, we want to thank you all for making our lives just a little brighter here on We Love Radio. Oh, my God. We Love Radio. Uh, but We Love Radio never makes it onto the street. That's true. It just lives in the air. Just and he stays behind that glass. He's just behind a giant glass. Um, Sal, the fuck is wrong with you? This ain't about money. I could give a fuck about money. You see this fucking place? I built this fucking place with my bare fucking hands. Every light socket, every piece of tile, me with these fucking hands. Even at the end of this, after Sal has done this terrible thing and incited this incident by becoming angry and smashing the boombox with the baseball bat. We're still trying to make our way through his feelings. Right. <laughs> what happened to him too? He right. still is like, I thought I had some pride of ownership in this community and maybe I didn't. And Spike didn't have to put that in the movie. He didn't have to close the movie with letting Sal say anything ever again. That's right. another thing that is lost on all the people that were critical of the ending of the movie. Sal gets to say that. He didn't have to do that. Anyway. No, I mean, not only does he get to say that, I mean, every, every, Every step forward for this movie is a step back, right? Like, it, it, you really haven't gone anywhere because everything is so evenly balanced. And the idea that <laughs> that scene, you have this sort of juxtaposition of their, of, their, of their respective goals in that conversation, which are opposed to each other. And then after, just like that conversation is two halves, the antagonistic half and then there's the I we're not going to be friends but let's just have a moment that's kind of like our relationship used to be before you threw a trash can through my window and <laughs> destroyed that guy's radio when he died. I got a few more here. Okay. Why don't you go back to Massachusetts? I was born in Brooklyn. <laughs> um, you mentioned the whole exchange between Pino and Mookie about who's your favorite basketball player? Magic Johnson. Who's your favorite movie star? Eddie Murphy. And who's your favorite rock star? Prince, you're a Prince freak. Boss, Bruce. That whole exchange about what is and is what is not black. Bruce. <laughs> uh, that's a great, I mean, but that's a great, I mean, that is the best conversation in the movie, I would say. They're not really black. Right. Because that is an actual conversation that so many black people have had with so many non-black people. Like, you're a good one. Yeah. You're well. You don't. You don't count. I'm your friend. We couldn't. You. You're. You're fine. Like you're. We're. If we're friends, so you couldn't. I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about them. He puts his finger right on that. It's, it's amazing. It's. It's just. It is a conversation. I still have. I opened this podcast with a senor, Mister Senor Love Daddy quote. There's another one here that I like. Opened? Liked. You exploded. I exploded. <laughs> you exploded this podcast with a senior love daddy quote. Whoa, y'all take a chill. You got to cool that shit off. And that's the double truth, Ruth. 
Couple more, Wesley. Could this work as a 10 episode Netflix no. show? Actually, in 2019? I say no, but actually, couldn't it? It could. It wouldn't be as, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be the perfect math problem that the movie is, but maybe it'd be a different math problem. As we know, he already made a TV show I, out of She's Gotta Have It. I wouldn't watch it, and he knows better about that show. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Spike. Unanswerable questions. Did Mookie throw the chat trash can to save Sal? Or to express his rage. Did he I always, divert the I think attention? about this all the time. I really, I mean, talk about a conundrum that you'll never have an answer to. It is Because I think that you could argue, you could argue both. You could argue that he did do it to, I mean, because he does have, we don't know anything about Mookie's family. We know about the family he's starting. We don't know about where he came from. We know about the sister. We don't know where the parents are. Nope. And... I think that there is a kind of like he, I mean, at some point it's explicitly said by Sal, I think that you're like a third son. Yeah. And I, I do think there's a fealty to Sal in some way. Um, but I also think that he knows the neighborhood he lives in and maybe, maybe this thing should go. Maybe it should go. There's a dead person in the street. Somebody's got to pay and it's not going to be the police. So make this other white people do it. I think you're right. I think it can be both. Right. Why is Pino so mad? What is wrong with him? Because he, Vito is he not mad. He tried to kick it to a black girl and she said no. <laughs> he tried to step to a black girl and she was like, you ain't got no game. I buy I it. Can't, I can't do this. <laughs> it's just that simple because you know what, Sean? It always is that simple. Good, good to know. Maybe that is an answerable question. Mookie and Sal made up in future Spike films. How long transpired before they patched it up? A day, a week, 10 years? I don't think they patched it up. Like some, he needed a job and Sal needed a delivery person. So there you go. You're good at answering these questions. I have thought about this movie every day of my life since 1989. So ask away. Did mother, sister, and the mayor bone? Oh my God. You mean after the... They boned, they'd previously boned. That's okay. the whole thing about yeah. them, right? Like it was, they probably spent the rest of their lives together. I would say she made him take a shower. That's for sure. I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Excuse me. I could smell him from 1989 or 2019. He still smells. That scene when, you know, when we first meet the mayor, when he's wakes up in his bedroom and he's got all the old empty beer bottles in his room and he's sweating. He smells like my grandmother's fourth husband is what he smells like. Did Tina and Mookie stay together? No. No way. No way. Not a chance. That's an answerable question. There's only one more question to ask on this podcast and it's who won the movie? Can I add, before we do that? Yeah. (laughs) Another question. Yeah. Was Sal's pizza good? Was it actually good? Because it, like, I've been thinking about this question for the whole time. I have never seen pizza that looks like that pizza. It looks like Play-Doh. So, you know, there's a story behind this. Oh, that always is. So the budget of this movie is a little tight. They only had two pizzas. (laughs) And the props department had to reuse the same two pizzas. (laughs) John Turturro famously was taught how to cut pizza. When you're cutting with a pizza roller, you need to dig into the crust, down and through. (laughs) And in the movie, if you watch the movie, you can see him just kind of like airing it and not going through it because they couldn't cut up the two pizzas that they had. So uh, 
I don't know if it was good. It was it was certainly in short supply. <laughs> but wait, was it an actual pizza? I think it was an actual pizza. That it was looks like claymation. Well, you know what happens to pizza when you let it sit out. <laughs> and they only had two. It's not like they had a, a hot I'm pizza sorry, coming. The in. idea that like, can I just say something about black people and pizza? Like, sure. I'm not going to speak for everybody. I'm just going to speak for myself. Are I you going to say you don't like pizza? If you Sean, say that, Sean, we're, we're, Sean, you're in a lot of trouble. Sean, Sean, Sean. I'm not crazy. Okay. <laughs> just, I, just. I legit, legit got nervous. No, that's not what I was going to say. But I wouldn't eat South pizza. Like, not know. even as politics, as food. Like, am I going to burn down a neighborhood for this? Oh, this pizza does not look good. The worst pizza I've ever had in New York is better than most food I've ever eaten in California. <laughs> oh, my God. I, there's a meteor coming? We better answer this last question. Our, 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 our Angelino producer, Isaac Lee, is, his head hurts right now that I said that. But I mean, the truth is, Sean, pizza is really important. To you? To all humanity. But you can eat it here. It's fine here. It's not good. Wait, let me just be clear. Never about, great. Can I just be clear about what you never great? What did you just say that all of the? Can you just say what you said again? I want to be sure I understand what you're saying. The worst pizza I've ever had in New York mm-hmm. is better than any food I've had in California. Have you been to Koreatown? I love the food in Koreatown. You still think that the worst pizza in New York is better than all of the food in Koreatown? Pizza is a is a holy deity to me. Okay. Particularly on the East Coast. I don't even know where to start. Where would I even take you to make you change your mind? You've probably been all places. I know that you eat. You're a good eater. I love to eat. I don't know. I love a lot of food in California. I'm just explaining to you. It's not a critique of California. It sounds like a critique of California. high (laughs) praise for pizza in New York. That's what this is about. So all you Angelinos, I don't want to hear your fucking tweets. (laughs) Don't send them to me. I get it. You're mad that I said something. But Sean, can... Can I, a Philadelphian, take you, a New Yorker, to some bad pizza in New York City? Because it's, yes. it's still not. Don't get me wrong. I I am delighted to be living here. You in should California. be because I love this, California. This is the best eating on on planet Earth. Yeah, but they don't do pizza great. But don't hold the rest of the food against. I'm not. That's not what I'm saying. I'm I'm merely valorizing pizza as a as a cultural force. I say you would like some poetic license. I will grant it to you. I need another Spike Lee pizza movie. <laughs> you don't. Not if it's Sal's. Just saying. Who won the movie besides pizza? Oh, Spike Lee. Spike Lee. Spike Lee. It made his career. It is it is one of the greatest movies this country has ever produced. It. Is the movie like no matter what Spike Lee wants to do with himself, it is the it is one of the things. I mean, his children, his marriage. I don't know what else he's proud of. Like some of like a lot of his charitable work. Um, the idea that he inspired generations of people to want to make movies and believe that they could because he did. The performances that he has allowed everybody from like Edward Norton to his own sister to give in movies. Like Cinda Williams is is pretty good in a Spike Lee movie, <laughs> like, and she, he treats her. I would say he didn't. Try, I, I don't know what Cinda Williams would say about her treatment, but like as a person in a movie, treated just as well as 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 Edward Norton. I mean, makes clockers. 
My second favorite Spike Lee movie has the greatest ending of of all Spike Lee's movies. I love that movie too. It is. It I wish is, we had spent more time on that. Clockers is perfect. Another perfect movie. Not a perfect script. Script's got a lot of problems. But Spike Lee again is solving Richard Price problems with Spike Lee filmmaking mm. and has a real moral clarity that he that when he can see things morally clearly, he is at his best. That's why the Katrina documentary is so effective and the four little girls are so effective. And I just think Clockers is the the one of the best American movies made about a young black male, period. Um, but still, this this movie is the thing that he should be most proud of because it's a thing nobody in this country has ever done before and hasn't done since, which is make a perfect movie about an imperfect problem, the like most America's biggest problem that America is never going to solve. And he made it in a way that people will be watching it in a hundred years being like, well, he figured this out because we sure haven't yet. And we're in, we're in outer space. I don't have anything further to add to that statement for Wesley Morris. I'm Sean Fennessy. This has been the rewatchables do the right thing. (laughs) Thank you for listening and always do the right thing. Always do the right thing, everybody, especially in 2020. Thanks to Vudu. Vudu is a leading streaming app with a library of over 150,000 titles available to rent or buy, and over 10,000 titles you can watch for free on their ad-supported on-demand service. Enjoy everything from the latest Hollywood blockbusters to your favorite indie films without subscriptions or contracts. With Matrix 4 coming soon, I suggest you guys dive into Vudu.com and check out a few of the other previous Matrix movies. So head over to Vudu.com backslash rewatchables to sign up and start watching today. That's V-U-D-U dot com slash rewatchables. Thanks also to Hotel Tonight. Hotel Tonight shows you incredible deals at cool hotels you'll actually want to stay at. Score an extra amazing deal with Hotel Tonight's daily drop feature. Unlock a special deal at a hotel selected just for you and snag it within 15 minutes. If you want to swipe again, you can unlock a new deal every day. So go to hoteltonight.com or download the app to unlock your daily drop.